Hello, 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 hello everyone and welcome back to the second episode of Cheers 2. Um, this week is again a little bit different because I was meant to be recording uh, this podcast with my friend. Fortunately, life happened and that isn't going to be happening this week, so instead, uh, just getting another episode just done by myself. Um, so in a minute, I'm going to let Drunk Steve take it away and he'll just go for everything. Uh, but just to say thank you to everyone who actually listened to the first episode. So like I say, I'm trying to improve everything. So I think this week, uh, the audio quality should be a little bit better as I'm... Uh, doing it for a bit of a different rig than I did last time. Um, do let me know if it has improved or if there's still a way to go, which I imagine there will be. However, we're getting there. Um, but yeah, sorry again, I don't have my co-host, even though that's the uh, entire point of this podcast. Uh, but alas, we'll get there eventually once people's schedules sync up and we can actually get this done. Uh, but do enjoy. It's a bit of a... It's a bit of a more serious topic than it was last week when we were discussing linguistics. Um, but yeah, hopefully you enjoy. And over to Drunk Stephen. Drunk Stephen, take it away. Hello. Hi. Guess who's back in the house? He's <laughs> like looking around. Five fish from his star to 11 and something, something, lyrics, I don't know. Hi. Guess who's back? It's me. It's Drunk Steven. How are we? Are we all okay? We're good. Also, I've made it my plan to at least include one reference to RuPaul's Drag Race in every episode, as I did last episode with uh, Bibi Zahara Benet's face, 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 I give face, beauty face. And this week's um, Call Me Mother by RuPaul, which, by the way, uh, Here's the tea on that. Apparently, RuPaul's getting sued by Azalea Banks because she uh, sampled Azalea's music without giving Azalea credit. Hmm. Google it. Read for yourself. Find out what you think. Uh, but hi. Hello. Hi. How are we? My name is uh, Stephen Devlin. Uh, this is Drunk Stephen, who's now talking. And we're going to do an episode of Cheers 2. So this week, uh, what are we choosing to? I'm going to... Oh, let's see if we can do a bit of ASMR. Oh, that was good, wasn't it? Right, so we'll have a new can. And this week we are choosing to epinephrine. So cheers to epinephrine. Now, for those of you who may not know, epinephrine is another name of the hormone adrenaline. Um, now, the reason we're getting into this is because I'm going to be discussing something that I deal with on a regular basis. And I know a lot of other people deal with on a regular basis, and that is... Um, panic attacks and having panic attacks and all of that. I was going to say all of that good stuff, but they're clearly not good, but they are what they are. Um, so we're going to get into all of that and what panic attacks are physiologically, uh, how they happen, why they happen, and the effects that they have on the body and what we can do to treat them, what we can do to get rid of them, what we can do to avoid them. Uh, and all that good stuff. So let's do a brief little history lesson. So we're going to do the history of epinephrine. Now, epinephrine, epinephrine, otherwise known as adrenaline, is a hormone. Um, now, it was first sort of known, its actions were first sort of known in the late 1800s. They were discovered by two English um, doctors, scientists, professors, chemists, um, 
called George Oliver and, and this guy who has the, the most British name I've ever heard in my entire life, um, Sir Edward Albert Sharpe Schaffer, which by the way, I try to say that five times fast, Sir Edward Albert Sharpe Schaffer, L Sir Edward Albert Sharpe Schaffer, Edward Albert Sharpe, no, okay, I can do it a total of maybe once, <laughs> but I challenge you, try to do it five times in a row. Uh, the first people in the late 800s, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, to describe the effect of the secretion of the adrenal gland on the uh, heart and the heart rate, i.e. Uh, they noticed that when subjected to the um, output of the adrenal gland, the heart and the heart rate sped up. Uh, cut to uh, the 1900s and cut to by nine. By 1900, uh, John Jacob Abel and Jokichi Takamine, um, an American and a Japanese American respectively, independently isolate and identify the hormone and figure out what it's actually doing within the body. And then in 1904, so not that long afterwards actually, you have a German scientist, uh, Friedrich Stoltz, probably pronounced that completely wrong, but Friedrich Stolz, he's the first to actually synthesize the hormone and um, make it himself. Now, epinephrine, you're probably wondering um, why am I talking about this, and it's because me, I personally have um, depression and I suffer from anxiety attacks as part of my symptoms of my depression, and I suffer from high levels of anxiety. So today, we're, that's why we're discussing it, we're going to going to get it into it. So we've done a little bit of a history of epinephrine as it's discovered um, by scientists. However, let's do a little bit of epinephrine as it has worked within the body because clearly it's been there since well before science came along and decided it was going to investigate what it was doing and what it was, what, what its function was within the body. Now, epinephrine or adrenaline, um, basically it's part of an evolutionary um, it's part of our evolutionary toolkit that's meant to save us in stressful or difficult situations. Um, so you've probably heard of the fight or flight mechanic or the fight and flight response. And that's basically controlled by epinephrine or adrenaline. And that's whenever your body is placed within a particularly stressful situation, very quickly you have to make the decision as to whether or not you're going to fight that thing or you're going to run away from that thing. Now, in both those scenarios, you kind of need the same things going on, i.e. you need your muscles activated, you need your um, blood to be running around to give your muscles fresh oxygen so that you can use your muscles. Now, in terms of fight or flight, you can either be using those muscles because you're having a battle and you're waging a battle against dinner that night, or because your legs need you to get the fuck away from whatever you're involved with quite quickly. So that's kind of what it developed from. Um, this idea that back in the day we were hunting our food rather than going to Morrison's or Tesco's or Asda or anywhere else and picking it up. So your body needed a way to be able to respond to both the um, kill, the chase, the end of the chase, you know, being able to fight the animal, um, but also in case it turns out that that animal was a bit much. Uh, but too much to handle that you could run away from it. And that's kind of where epinephrine comes in. Um, as I said, um, it's secreted from the adrenal gland. It is a hormone. 
and it works on adrenal receptors, so called because they receive adrenaline, adrenal receptors. It works on them and it works with the sympathetic nervous system to promote um, basically that fight or flight response. It gives you the energy you need to be able to fight back or it gives you the energy you need to be able to run away. Now, we're not going too much into specifically the fight or flight response or the actual normal action of adrenaline or epinephrine. We're specifically, this episode, going to be talking about um, panic attacks. Because panic attacks and um, anxiety and anxiety disorders or panic disorders are a direct... Um, they're directly caused by something within this pathway that is the fight-or-flight response going slightly awry, not being quite what it should be, <laughs> i.e. your body is responding to... Uh, for me, personally, at the moment, it's leaving the house. Whenever I leave the house, I end up having a bit of a panic attack, and I have to deal with that. But what that means to me is that there's something within my body that sees leaving the house the same as fighting an animal, which obviously isn't, you know, th that's not true. <laughs> Leaving the house is generally safe, it's generally fine, uh, but something's quite gone wrong, whereby my body perceives the threat of leaving the house the same as the threat of fighting an animal, or uh, having a traumatic event happen. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, first of all, because as I said, we're, you know, like we're focusing specifically on panic attacks, I think it's, um, probably the probably viable to actually talk about what a panic attack is. So a panic attack, as I say, is um, caused directly by epinephrine or adrenaline. Now, physiologically, what happens is your uh, adrenal gland essentially dumps a shit ton of adrenaline or epinephrine into your bloodstream at once because it thinks, right, I need to get myself ready to um, have a battle or run away, so it dumps a shit ton of adrenaline into your body, and the symptoms that this can cause are, I've got a little bit of a uh, list here, so it causes increased heart rate, uh, heart palpitations, sweating, shaking, um, shortness of breath, or shortness of breathe, <laughs> as I've written, shortness of breathe, uh, shortness of breath, um, a choking sensation, as in you're not getting enough breath in, um, nausea, um, Two that are really, um, really bad for myself, which is derealization and depersonalization. Uh, so derealization is kind of, you go into a sense or you go into a state whereby nothing feels real. It all kind of feels a bit fake. You kind of feel withdrawn from the situation. Um, and depersonalization, which is a little bit different. It's not that the surroundings feel unreal. Depersonalization is that you feel unreal i.e. you feel, you know, uh, it's that thing of having like, a, it's almost an outer body experience. You're looking down on yourself going, okay, that's the concept of me. It's not actually me. If that makes any sense <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, but I must admit, derealization and derealization and depersonalization are two that I get quite badly with my own panic attacks. Uh, another couple of res uh, uh, symptoms would be the fear of losing control, i.e. the fear of in that moment you might do something you um, regret further on down the line um, and fear of dying and fear of dying kind of ties into the increased heart rate the palpitations the, the loss of breath um, and that's because a lot of people if they've never had a panic attack before often confuse the onset of a panic attack 
with the onset of a heart attack because the symptoms are very similar. Um, which is why oftentimes when someone goes to A&E with a panic attack because you know they think they're having a heart attack, uh, what they do is they do diagnosis by exclusion. So they kind of like test, say, these you know two or three things which are exclusive to a heart attack. And they say, okay, so you've not got these, so it's not a heart attack. So then you go into, okay, so you're having these other symptoms. What uh, Does that exclude you from this? Does that include you for this? And they basically um, do, uh, uh, what would you call that? They say exclude the things that aren't applicable and then they'll diagnose you with having a panic attack. Um, but yes, so um, as I was saying, panic attacks are often associated with the in the condition that I have, which is I have chronic depression and anxiety and anxiety, panic attacks, all that kind of good stuff um, is all sort of associated with that. However, panic attacks can also be associated with other uh, physical disorders rather than mental disorders. So associated conditions might be something like hyperthyroidism, hyperparathyroidism, which I don't really know the difference of, but however, um, heart disease, lung disease and drug use. So these are physical things you're doing to your body which may induce the same symptoms as a panic attack but are slightly different to how an actual panic attack is induced which is where something goes wrong in the adrenal cortex, uh, adrenal cortex, adrenal um, centre of the brain and therefore you have this massive release of adrenaline into the blood system. So, just a bit more about panic attacks themselves, they typically last about 10 to 15 minutes, typically. Now you can get panic attacks that will last anywhere from a couple of seconds up to a couple of hours. Me personally, I've experienced the full gambit. I've experienced ones that have lasted a couple of minutes to ones that have lasted about two or three hours, depending on triggers. But we're going to go back to triggers in just a, um, just a couple of minutes and talk about what triggers actually mean in terms of having a anxiety or a panic disorder. Um, what's... What, what what's different about a panic attack um, to most other things in terms of your depression or in terms of your, um, I don't know, maybe having a phobia, like agoraphobia or something like that, is the fact that they're often triggered unexpectedly, which is the kind of horrible bit about them. Uh, you can kind of just be sat there having your lunch or whatever and having a fine day and then the next minute, you know, you're in a mindset in which you're dying and everything is horrible and you hate it and you want to just go home and have a nap but that's kind of a um, intrinsic symptom of panic attacks is that they are unexpected. Sometimes they can be expected if there are certain triggers but we'll get back to that at a later stage in the um, podcast. Um, but they can happen unexpectedly or be triggered by certain events, as I say. Um, the one really insidious thing that I find, or insidious thing rather, if I can pronounce my words correctly, uh, insidious thing that I find with uh, panic attacks is that they can form positive feedback loops. Now, what this means is, imagine, um, imagine one day I'm going off to Tesco. Shop in Tesco is a brand of supermarket within the UK. So I'm specifically off to Tesco one day, and halfway towards Tesco, I start having a panic attack. Whatever, deal with it, process it, right? Now, 
a week later, I then am going back to do my same shop at Tesco. On the way there, I might start having another panic attack. Now, that panic attack has nothing to do with the fact that I'm actually within a situation that I need to be prepared to fight or flight from. Flight or fight or fly from. Okay. Um, has nothing to do with that. The whole point of it is, is the fact that I had a panic attack last time I went to Tesco and my brain has somehow connected those two thoughts together. I.e. you go to Tesco, you have panic attack. Those two things becomes associate, become associated within the brain. And so you'll find that people who have chronic panic attacks can sometimes form what are known as positive feedback loops, whereby when action A happens and panic attack ensues, every time they go to take action A, they'll have a panic attack. Not necessarily because it is something that triggers them, which again, we'll get back to triggers, but it's not something that necessarily would trigger them, you know, intrinsically. Action A isn't intrinsically um, fearful or isn't intrinsically scary. It's just the fact that it's happened previously and thus it forms a loop. Now, those are kind of the symptoms, and those are kind of like how they happen uh, to to people. As I say, we've, we've talked about associated disorders, we've talked about what actually happens during a physical panic attack, how long they last, and kind of their mode of action. So forming the positive feedback loop caused by the dumping of uh, adrenaline or epinephrine into the bloodstream. Um, so why does this cause a panic attack? actually having adrenaline dumped into the blood system. What's adrenaline actually meant to do and what's it doing and why is that causing uh, the symptoms of a panic attack? So, the first thing that happens is your body or your mind has this idea that, holy shit, I'm in danger. So you have this moment where you think, holy crap, I'm in danger, and you have this release of epinephrine from the adrenal gland, like we say. Epinephrine starts running around the body, it's a hormone, it's part of the endocrine system, so it goes through the bloodstream, and it interacts with these things called adrenal receptors. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, adrenal receptors are found um, all over the body. They're involved with absolutely everything. Um, you can get them anywhere from your saliva to your gut to your enteric nervous system. They're all everywhere. They're having a fun time. Um, now, as I say, this induces what's known as the fight or flight response, which is basically preparing you to either fight and fight a foe fight an enemy, fight an animal, or run away. You've bit off more than two, you need to run away. So what this does in the first place is obviously if you're going to fight something or you're going to run away from something, you need to be able to run. You need to be able to move your muscles, you need to be able to get your muscles engaged. Now, for your muscles to work and for your muscles to be engaged, there needs to be oxygen supplied to your muscles really quickly and really readily. So the epinephrine's initial plan, as it were, plan in inverted commas, is to increase your heart rate and to increase blood flow so that it can get the blood with the oxygen to your muscles. Now, during the actual normal fight or flight response where you are moving your muscles more, that's fine because your muscles will use up that oxygen have it converted to carbon dioxide, get that dropped off back in the blood, and the cycle continues and it's fine until such point that you're out of that situation. You're out of the situation whereby you're in the fight or flight response and you can move on and live your life and do whatever you need to do. 
However, when you don't actually have a trigger, i.e. you're just sat in your bed or you're sat in the house and you have a panic attack, you're obviously not going to start running around like a dafty because you have no reason to do that. So what ends up happening is it's this increased heart rate that ends up causing the other symptoms such as the shortness of breath, such as the feeling of choking, such as the... Um, heart palpitations, all the rest of it. So what actually happens is when you have an increased heart rate, you start um, pumping a lot more oxygen around the blood. But what you also do is you get rid of a lot more carbon dioxide. Now, one thing to know about the body is the body doesn't actually care so much about getting oxygen in as it does about getting carbon dioxide out. Carbon dioxide out is the lungs and the circulatory system's main priority. doesn't care about getting oxygen in quite as much. It wants to get CO2 out. However, what happens um, when you... Because CO2, basically, once it's in the blood, forms... Because um, blood has to be at a certain pH. pH is basically whether it's acidic or alkali. Your blood needs to be at a certain level to work healthily and to work normally and to work... Uh, as brilliantly as it does. What ends up happening, because you have this increased heart rate, but you're not exercising, i.e. you're not using up oxygen, i.e. you're not converting the oxygen in your blood into CO2, you end up with loads of oxygen in your blood, but you end up with hardly any CO2. Now your oxygen and your CO2 concentration in your blood need to be kept in balance. Because if they're not in balance, things can go wrong. So in this case, what happens is you have this increased heart rate. You've got all this extra oxygen running around your blood. You're getting rid of all this CO2. So you have a drop in CO2. Now, what that causes is that causes something called respiratory alkalosis. Basically means your blood becomes alkaline. So it becomes um, above 7 pH. Right? Now, so you've got the increased heart rate directly caused by the adrenaline, which then causes a drop in CO2 because your heart rate and your uh, rate of respiration are directly linked. So that's why you're breathing more, because you've got all this extra blood coming in. If you've got all this extra flesh, uh, flesh, if you've got all this extra deoxygenated blood coming into the lung, your body responds by saying, hey, wait a second, I've got so much more blood coming into my lungs, I need to breathe more so I can get more air coming into the lungs. Does that make sense? More blood into lungs means you need more air in your lungs so you can load up the new blood with oxygen. I think that makes sense. <laughs> but because that oxygen isn't going anywhere, you're not moving your muscles, you're not respiring, you're not working, you're not doing anything, the oxygen just kind of tags along until it's used up. But what this does cause is because whenever a red blood cell is within the lungs, it drops off any CO2. So it drops off your uh, CO2 into the lungs, which gets breathed out because you're hyperventilating, because you're hyperventilating because of your heart rate increasing. So you're hyperventilating, get rid of the CO2, leads to respiratory alkalosis, which means your blood pH level goes above 7. Uh, I think it's actually 7.4. I think your blood's meant to be at 7.4, which is just a little bit more alkaline than neutral, which is 7.0. But this increases it even further, so you've got respiratory alkalosis. Now, in order to compensate for the fact that you've had a drop in CO2 
and also to um, so we'll deal with this first of all. So in order to compensate for the fact that you've had a drop in CO2, your body starts doing other things to the blood vessels. So it starts vasoconstricting them to stop as much blood going back to the lungs because it's obviously like red right and you just need to drop off all this CO2 because I've actually, I've, I've, I've lost a lot of CO2 so I need some more in my blood. So I'm going to cut off some of the blood supply going back to the lungs so I've got some CO2 in my blood still so I can keep my pH level where it should be. All right. But what this has a knock-on effect of doing is your vasoconstriction, which by the way, vaso meaning vessel, so blood vessel, right? vein, artery, capillary, all the rest of it, or if you're American, capillary, which by the way is disgusting, capillary. Vasoconstriction, it constricts those vessels so that blood has a harder time moving around it. And what this can do is it, it increases your blood pressure which for people who have high blood pressure in the first place, first place that can lead on to uh, other knock-on effects. But what it does is it also restricts blood flow, and that's to everywhere in the body, including the brain. So this is why you have these feelings of um, dizziness, nausea, uh, fear of losing control, fear of dying, because your brain isn't getting enough oxygen at this point, because your vessels are literally constricting themselves to try and prevent CO2 from leaving the blood because it needs to be kept at that very precise balance of 7.4 pH. So you can see that just from the one thing that the whole system is designed to do, i.e. it's designed to provide your muscles with more oxygen, right? when you get epinephrine or adrenaline dumped into blood, it's designed to provide your cells with more oxygen. If you're not actually using up that oxygen, it leads to these whole host of other symptoms in kind of sequential order, i.e. you increase your heart rate, you increase your respiratory rate. However, you're not actually using your oxygen, so you drop out, you know, your uh, CO2 concentration drops. Alkalosis incurs, so your body's like, right, well, I need to keep as much CO2 as possible, shut off the veins, shut off the arteries, keep them all as tight as possible oh, now suddenly you're dizzy because you're not getting enough blood to the brain because not only is it cutting off uh, the vessels that want to drop off CO2 at the lungs, you're also dropping off the vessels that want to drop off O2 at the cells, you know, the, the oxygen at the cells. So you can see all of this is like cyclical. It's all connected. It's all as soon as one happens, happens the next, happens the next. And that's why often if you're someone who's ever had a panic attack, you'll feel it kind of come on. It doesn't start off as in like, you know, minute one, you're fully there, full blown panic attack. If you're someone who's ever had one, you can kind of feel it build and build and build and build and build. And you kind of can feel one coming on. And that's because it starts off with one, the heart rate it starts off with two, you know, one, the heart rate, and then two, the uh, respiratory rate, and then three, blah, 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 and it carries on. And it just gets. Uh, progressively <laughs> more uh, progressively more worse good English progressively worse is <laughs> what it gets now so we've talked about the the actual phys physiology physiology of a panic attack is essentially a hormone hormone that goes wrong um, and causes all of these uh, horrific symptoms which by the way if you've never had one don't recommend you have them because they're fucking horrible but if you've had one you'll understand that it's a horrific experience for however long it lasts 
Um, I've talked about all that. Now, I want to, at this moment, talk about treatments because panic attacks are very treatable. Very treatable. They're, they're something you should part up with. If you're experiencing them, go and get help. Talk to your physician, talk to your doctor, talk to your whoever you need to talk to. Talk to your therapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, whoever. Get help because there's help out there. Now, studies have recently shown that one of the most effective treatments, um, and I say studies as if it's like one of those Facebook posts, like, studies have shown that blue people with blue eyes are more intelligent, and you're like, well, where are your sources? But no, there are sources for this. Um, look in any psychological journal. There are sources and there's tests and there's papers and there's all sorts of um, work being done. And at the moment, what we can see is that cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most effective and long-lasting therapies for people who suffer panic attacks. Now, that's cognitive behavioral therapy versus normal therapy versus medication versus medication and normal therapy is all of these different things across the board. And cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT seems to be the most effective way of dealing with panic attacks. And that's because CBT has a really interesting, um, how would I describe it? It's almost like you do these things physically that affect your world mentally. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, so it's the actions you take, it's the physical things that you do throughout the day are making a difference to your cognitive understanding of the world. They're rewiring your brain, essentially. A lot of people see CBT as a brain rewiring. Um, simple things to do with CBT involves things like guided relaxations, what other people would call maybe meditation, um, but CBT calls guided relaxations. It also has to do with doing things like gratitude journals. So a gratitude journal is, you know, at night writing down um, three, five things that you're happy with that happened throughout the day. So it was a beautiful day, it was sunny outside, um, I got to speak to my friend, I got to have an ice cream. Like these things, you're writing them down, you're, you're forcing your brain to kind of focus on those things which will bring you joy. That's a very, these are basic CBT techniques. Um, for more, speak to your therapist, and I'm sure they'll give you a more in-depth, but this is just to give you an idea as to what I'm saying, in that what you do physically, i.e. physically writing down those things you're happy for, um, have an effect on the brain. It's a relay. The more you focus on your happy things, the more you focus on what brings you happiness, the more your brain wants to be happy and bring you happiness, or at least that's kind of the, the basics or the basis of what CBT actually is. And that at the moment is deemed to be the most effective or the most long-lasting um, cure or treatment, you know, cure in inverted commas, or treatment for uh, people who have, and it's not just, you know, panic attacks or panic disorders or anxiety disorders, it's also people who have depression um, and other related disorders like just borderline personality disorder and all these things. Um, it's brilliant because it's essentially rewiring and remapping and resetting your brain almost. Um, another really common treatment for panic attacks specifically is removal of stressors. Now stressors are those things that make you make you upset, make you have a panic attack. If you refer back to what I was saying earlier about the positive feedback loop, i.e. you have a panic attack on the way to Tesco and then every time thereafter that you go to Tesco you have a panic attack. Don't go to Tesco. Don't <laughs> remove that stressor. Don't go there anymore. Shop somewhere else. 
can be something as similar, you know, something something as similar, words and phrases and things and sentences. Um, something as simple as shopping at a different supermarket, or it can be um, finding a new job, or it can be switching course or dropping a course, or whatever. Something that's bringing you stress, trying to remove that, trying to remove the triggers, will help you on your journey with dealing with uh, anxiety attacks. Um, another thing is, so, another thing is medication. Now you've basically got two branches of medication that you can go down. Um, the more effective one in terms of long term is your SSRIs, otherwise known as your selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh, they're probably the biggest class of antidepressants. I think they're the biggest class of antidepressants, or at least they're the most commonly prescribed class of antidepressants. Now, their exact mode of action, i.e. the exact, you know, the exact thing that they do within the brain or the exact thing they do within the body is unknown. Um, but basically what they think they do is, so within the brain you've got these neurological pathways that run from, you know, A to B. Now, you've got nerve cell A and you've got nerve cell B, and nerve cell A releases these chemicals called neurotransmitters that basically float along hit nerve B and then nerve B is like ah okay cool so you're telling me to feel this sort of way you're telling me to excite this sort of pathway you're telling me to do this so to give you a couple of examples you've got serotonin which is what we're dealing with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors serotonin runs along the pathways within the brain which cause happiness and cause contentment and cause all these positive emotions that we love um, you've maybe got other things, other neurotransmitters like oxytocin. Oxytocin is basically the connection neurotransmitter. So, and I mean connection as in familial and love. So, you know, when you talk to your parents, you'll have a release of oxytocin. When you hug someone you love, you'll have a release of oxytocin. And it's basically that reward mechanism that rewards human beings for connecting with one another. Which, if you think about it back in our history, that's important because humans are a communal species we need other humans to survive so our brain gives us a little reward it gives us a little oxytocin it gives us a little summit summit whenever we're forming a connection we need that but what happens is is you get brain cell a wants to communicate with brain cell b so brain cell a releases this serotonin brain cell b picks it up relays the message onto the next cell onto c d e and f right now what they reckon happens with these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors is cell A, so let's say we're not taking these, right? we're not taking the medication, cell A releases a bunch of serotonin, cell B doesn't pick it up. It's not picking up what you're putting down. And so what ends up happening, because the body wants to recycle as much as it can, is cell A ends up reabsorbing that serotonin. So that happiness pathway isn't activated. So you're going from cell A releasing all these neurotransmitters, cell B not picking it up, and then cell A picking it back up again because it doesn't want to waste anything, right? Now, what they reckon happens with these SSRIs... Now, what they, what they reckon is happening with these SSRIs um, is that essentially they're... Because there's two ends to a nerve cell. Right, you've got the axon and you've got the dendrite. Wait, no. You've got two ends. <laughs> I can't quite remember the names of both ends right now, but you've got two ends. So essentially you've got the 
ends that releases these neurotransmitters and the end that receives them. Now what they reckon is happening with these SSRIs is they are preventing the ends which release the neurotransmitter from reabsorbing the neurotransmitter and therefore it's just left within the cleft between two neurons and therefore it must be, must be being absorbed by the accepting end of the next neuron and therefore activating these happiness uh, pathways in terms of serotonin. Now, why this has a knock-on effect on anxiety disorders, uh, panic attacks, all the rest of it, is merely the fact that the happier you are as a person, i.e. the more of these serotonin pathways which you're being allowed to crack on and get on with what they're meant to be doing, the less likely you are to be triggered by certain events. So, like I was saying earlier, if you're triggered by going to Tesco, if you're a happy person, you're a jolly person, you're an okay person, which is what these SSRIs are intended to do, the less likely it is that you're going to find that situations stressors, the less likely you are going to be triggered by these you know, these certain situations which are going to make you have panic attacks or likely to have panic attacks. Now, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and other classes of antidepressants do take longer to have an effect on reducing uh, panic attacks. However, there are a not, there's a whole other branch of medication you can take, which will uh, essentially stop panic attacks. Not immediately. Well, yeah, immediately. Um, and those are called beta blockers. Now you've probably heard of beta blockers. Now beta blockers, um, essentially there's, as we are talking about earlier, we are talking about adrenoreceptors, cells which receive adrenaline and are enervated and activated by the presence of adrenaline. Uh, these are, there's a class of them called your beta adrenaline receptors. To give you an example, you've got the um, salivary glands. Salivary glands, you've got three of them in your mouth, three sets of pairs, so six in total. You've got your parotid, you've got two parotid glands, two submandibular and two sublingual glands within the mouth which release saliva. Normally saliva is mostly water-based, it's uh, got amylase in it which um, helps digest your food, you've got mucins, all these other great things. Um, but when you have adrenaline running around your system, they activate the adrenoreceptors beta 1 and beta 2 within the salivary glands which release saliva which has a high mucus content and a high amylase content and it's very thin, not very thin, very thick, sorry, but very little in volume. Now you've got these beta receptors all throughout your body and those are the ones that are responsible for responding to adrenaline within the blood system, within the bloodstream and saying, ah, wait a second, I've got to do something. It's my time to shine, I've got an action to make now because the body is telling me I'm under attack, I'm under threat, I need to adapt the way I'm functioning, adapt the way I'm working to respond to that danger. Now obviously if you're responding to danger which isn't quite there in terms of having panic attacks, in terms of producing this adrenaline, this epinephrine, one of the most effective ways to stop at least the peripheral symptoms of uh, panic attacks is to take something called a beta blocker. Beta blocker, as the name suggests, blocks the beta receptors, the beta adrenal receptors. It blocks these um, cells which are there to pick up on adrenaline and tell you to start uh, having a panic attack, having the symptoms of a panic attack. So essentially you're attacking right at the 
core of the symptoms of panic attack. You're not actually preventing it. The adrenaline is still within the blood system. You're still undergoing that response, the fight or flight response, but the actual cells that the fight or flight response works upon are unable to react to the presence of adrenaline. Um, one of the most effective ones <laughs> is quite funny because I cannot pronounce it. It's propanolol. Propanolol? I just want to do propanolol. Um, that's one of the ones that are, is most widely prescribed. It's one of the ones that I've been prescribed. Um, and they're effective. They are effective in preventing panic attacks if you find that you're having them quite regularly. Um, but again, they're more of a band-aid, not an actual solution. They mainly kind of just say, right, we're going to prevent your body from actually reacting the way that the body would like to. <laughs> um, CBT, by far and away the most effective therapy. Um, and that's kind of how both the antidepressants work. They work by making it so that your body doesn't physically react to the stressors. And you've got your beta blockers, which basically make it so that if you do have that reaction, the parts of the body that would be enervated or would be activated cannot be activated or enervated, and therefore preventing panic attacks from uh, taking place. Um, so that's kind of your treatment. And if you look at the prognosis, i.e., how the condition, how chronic panic attacks can progress, um, it's generally pretty good. Two thirds of people will stop having panic attacks because they can be induced by, like I say, temporary stressors. As we, if we continue to go back to the example of Tesco, if you stop going to Tesco, you might not ever have a panic attack again. Um, however, there is one third of cases of people who have chronic, you know, patients who have chronic panic attacks in which they are what is known as treatment resistant, which means that despite being on SSRIs, despite being on beta blockers, despite everything, you're still having panic attacks. Um, and now that might actually indicate that you have a disorder of maybe not depression, maybe not an anxiety disorder per se, in terms of having unwanted stressors in your life or reacting badly to stressors in your life. It may just be that those pathways which are designed to reduce release adrenaline aren't functioning correctly and therefore you're getting unneeded or unnecessary release of epinephrine and adrenaline into the bloodstream. Those can be the cases which are difficult to treat. However, if it is a purely psychological based uh, disorder that you happen to have, generally find that therapy and medication will be able to help you or will be able to substantially relieve those uh, symptoms that you're having, relieve the panic attacks you're having. Um, and yeah, that's kind of it. The only other thing is, that I, I kind of have to talk about um, is, is treatment and things that I found useful. So I found it very useful to take part in CBT therapy, to take my medication, to be on the ball when it comes to making sure that I'm doing all that I can to make myself as best as I can be in terms of having panic attacks and having depression and blah, 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 and being realistic. Because when you're having panic attacks, it's because your body's under stress. The last thing you want to do is force yourself through extra stressors or stressors that aren't necessary in order to go to work or um, go on a social occasion, like a my hour or whatever like that. 
if you're finding that those are stressors, you need to make sure that you're putting your health before anything else and removing yourself from that situation, whether it be permanently or temporarily, it doesn't matter. But looking after yourself, going to CBT. Now I know here in the UK, I have the NHS, especially as a Scottish person, because surprise, surprise, I'm Scottish. Um, the NHS is completely free of charge. Prescriptions are free of charge. Everything is free of charge. Um, so if I need SSRIs or if I need beta blockers or if I need therapy, I can go and get that. If, however, you're in a system whereby you don't have access to that, please do Google it. Please do go on the internet. Please do search for it. Please search for treatment options. So I know there's applications, there's Headspace. Uh, I think there's one called Mindfulness or, or Clear or something. There's applications out there. Please, if you are in a situation where you feel that you are struggling with your mental health or you're struggling with panic attacks, anxiety, depression, any of these things, talk to someone. Talk to me. <laughs> I said in the first episode, my Instagram is at S underscore J underscore Devlin, D-E-V-L-I-N. Talk to me. Talk to someone, just please talk to someone because these things can all be aided or helped or improved or cured, you know, cured, quote unquote cured. It's important. Mental health is just as important as your physical health. It's the exact same problem. You know, if you're overweight, you go to the gym, you lose the weight. If you're mentally unwell, you need to take those steps to make yourself well again. And that's what I'm going to say on that. I know this episode is a bit uh, science-based and a bit um, deep and a bit dark and a bit heavy. <laughs> um, but all I want to say, just to end up on, is if you're feeling some sort of way or you're feeling like you need help, get help. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to love you and I'm going to leave you. And I'm going to go, because drunk Steve needs to go to bed, because it is currently 10 past 3 a.m. 10 past 3 a.m.? 10 past 3 in the morning. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And Sober Steve, take it away for the outro. Bye! Again, Drunk Steven, well done. Uh, another fantastic job you've done there. Uh, now, I know this week, obviously, um, I've kind of gone more into the science, science side of having panic attacks and um, anxiety uh, disorders and everything else like that. However, it is a very serious topic. Uh, there is help out there. If you live within the UK, there is the NHS. They are always willing to help you out. There's loads of pages online for the NHS. Um, and anywhere else in the world, talk to your local physician, talk to your doctor, get the help you need, it is available for you. Um, talk to people. Talk to people, talk to your friends, talk to your family. I know some for some people that's not always an option or they don't feel comfortable talking to people. But there are services, there's applications available as well where you can talk anonymously with therapists or even something like the Headspace app or something like that where you can um, take the time you need to work on your mental health because mental health is like physical health, if you do, you've got to look after it, otherwise it's um, not going to improve or uh, it's not going to get any better. So do, if you are feeling any of these 
symptoms or you are feeling like you have a uh, panic disorder, an anxiety disorder, a depression, whatever it may be, please go and get yourself help. It's there for a reason and it's there to be taken advantage of. I know in some places in the world healthcare isn't as easily as accessible as it is within the UK. We have the National Health Service but there are apps available, there are forums available, there's help available and do make the most of that. Uh, other than that I hope it was an entertaining episode. I know it's a little bit uh, a little bit serious <laughs> but the, this podcast is just about having a chat about everything and everything and panic attacks and anxiety and depression are part of everything and everything so i hope you enjoyed and stick again hopefully next week i'll actually have a guest um as that is the point but like i said in the introduction it just wasn't possible um this time around but stick with us please <laughs> hopefully we'll actually get guests and we'll get onto what this podcast is actually meant to be about which is having a conversation not me drunkenly talking at you um but hopefully you enjoyed and i'll speak to you later bye